millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted. Welcome back. My name is Todd Nettleton. This week we are going to have a repeat guest. We have had her in the studio before. Uh, this time we're going to use her full name because uh, since the last time we talked, uh, she has kind of been outed uh, publicly. <laughs> and so we are going to use her full name. Last time we talked to her, we called her C. Anderson. We're going to use her full name, Cynthia Anderson. Cynthia, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. And Cynthia is a longtime gospel worker in the field and a trainer, uh, training people to lead DMM, disciple-making movements. And last time we talked, you gave us uh, kind of a definition of that. But I think for our listeners, you better define that again. What is a disciple-making movement? Yeah, well, a disciple-making movement is when you see disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And those disciples start groups of disciples. Many of them become house churches. You see a, a population segment actually being impacted with the gospel transformation coming through what's happening with through DMMs. You have a brand new book. It's just been released this month, The Multiplier's Mindset, Thinking Differently About Discipleship. And Last time you were here, we talked about a course that you had developed. So is the book sort of the course in book form? Is it a completely separate thing? How do the two relate to each other? It is not the course in book form. It examines the mindset shifts that need to take place in order to release multiplication. How did God help us to go through those changes that released and unlocked the kinds of movements that we've experienced? And how can others experience that as well. Give me an example of one of those mindset shifts, maybe that you you went through yourself in, in your own ministry life of, okay, I was here, and then God helped me see, no, I, I don't have a full understanding. This is how it really is. The first one that I address in the book is faith. God can do it here. God can do it through me. We had been doing church planning in Nepal and India and doing everything that we were taught to do. <laughs> we had read all the good books on disciple-making movements. We had a lot of the how-tos. But there was a time when I was sitting under a tree in, in India, and I was just praying and seeking the Lord out in my garden. And, and that morning, tears just started flowing down my cheeks, and I, I began to just weep and say, God, when is it ever going to happen here? And I had this phrase come into my heart, which is actually the title of the first chapter in the book, Are We a Little League Team Trying to Win the World Series? I felt like just this stumbling, bumbling kid. Like we're completely unqualified. Completely we don't unqualified. Know what we're, doing. We've, we're trying, but we're fumbling the ball all the time. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen. And yet we're aiming for this disciple-making movement, this huge, massive thing, and and how is it ever going to happen? Will it ever happen, God? I know it's your will, you know, but is it ever going to happen? And so that drove me to Scripture. And for the next couple of months, I just poured through the Gospels and the Book of Acts and read them again and again, saying, God, 
how is it going to happen through us? And I was so convinced by Scripture, wow, God uses ordinary people, (laughs) broken people, people who don't have their act together. And if God could do it through people like that, that we see in the New Testament, he can do it through me. He can do it through our team. And faith rose up in my heart to believe God can do it here. God can do it through us. Even here, there's a lot of people who think, you know, that this kind of disciple-making work is for the pastors, is for leaders, is for amazing radical missionaries. But me, you know, could I make disciples? When Jesus called his disciples and he commissioned them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and teach them, train them to obey everything that I've commanded. That's for all of us. That's for anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus. And yet I, what I see in many American churches is this mentality of I'm an attendee, I show up, that's what means I'm a good Christian. <laughs> I'm there every week. I'm there every week. I'm there I, two weeks out of the month. And uh, sometimes <laughs> I pay my tithe. And, you know, that, that's, that's, what, that's what it means to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus. And there's just so much more available to us. And um, another mindset in the book is the shift to all. All are appointed for all activities. And really the concept that we are the royal priesthood. And he has anointed and appointed and ordained everyone who's invited Jesus into their life to be used of him to minister to others. And it's not just for the clergy. It's not just for pastors and leaders. And we don't have to just show up a couple times a week and and think that's good, you know, that's enough or that that's all there is. I think that's particularly true in America, in an American context where we pretty much think if somebody wanted to hear the gospel, they would have heard it by now because, you know, there's a church on every street corner and, you know, how could you not have heard the gospel? And if you haven't heard it, you probably don't want to. And so I'm not, you know, that's going to be an awkward conversation when you tell me, no, I don't want to hear anything about that. Why do we assume that? And and how do we change our mindset to think, no, they probably do have questions about spiritual things. How do we kind of get a hold of that in a way that changes how we interact with people on a day-to-day basis. The first thing is to look to Scripture. Jesus said it, right? It's true. It must be true, then. <laughs> it must be true. He said, don't say four more months, you know, before harvest. He said, look to the fields that are white unto harvest. And I think for me, it was getting that Scripture in my head and in my heart and into my behavior. <laughs> okay, Jesus said the harvest is ripe. So there are people out there who are ripe and ready to hear what I have to say. And I'm never going to find them if I don't start having spiritual conversations <laughs> with people mm-hmm. and take the risk to open up that conversation. But I'm going to assume there are people out there. It may not be the first person I talk to. It may not be the fifth, but there's somebody out there that God is working in, that he's prepared, who is ripe and ready. And I don't know if you've experienced this before, but sometimes when you find that person, it's like fruit falling off the tree. You know, you just, you you barely touch them and they're like, how do I believe in Jesus? (laughs) What do I say? What do I do? (laughs) You don't find those people unless you are believing that people are open and receptive. And, you know, I think we do assume in the States that there are many people who have already heard it all. And and yet Lifeway Research, I just read this the other day, says that only three out of 10 unchurched people have ever had a Christian explain to them the gospel. So our assumptions hinder us from entering into these conversations. And then also here in the U.S., we have so many people from other cultures, other religious backgrounds, 
People from other cultures love to talk about spiritual things. It's natural to them. In fact, I've had people from Muslim backgrounds say to me, why do Christians never talk about their religion? Why if are they, they keeping it a secret? If they love Jesus so much, why, why do I never hear them talk about him? And it doesn't make sense to them that something so important to us would not be part of our conversation. So lots of wrong assumptions, I uh-huh. think, that hinder us. And we have had conversations with former Muslims here in this studio that that have said exactly that, that Muslims are very comfortable talking about faith issues and religious issues. It's a very natural part of conversation for them. We tend to think, oh, no, that's the third rail. That's You don't, you don't <laughs> talk about that in public. Yeah. What are some of the other mindsets that that need to change to kind of move us forward towards starting these disciple-making movements? Uh, so often we think, you know, I need this, I need that. I need more theological training to be able to answer people's questions. I need more money uh, to be able to hand out flyers in my neighborhood. I need more time. That's a huge one for us as Mm -hmm. Americans. And I need more time or I need more this, more that, whatever it is. And, you know, the word of God says he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And if we believe that Jesus did command you and I to make disciples, he's not going to command us to do something and then not give us the resources we need to fulfill that command. And yet we get stuck in that mindset. I I'm, you know, I'm not adequate as a person. I don't have enough within me. I need more of something before I could do this. And so kind I'm of an unwinding introvert. that. I saw, I saw that argument in the book. <laughs> I'm an introvert. Well, yeah. Sorry, I don't talk to people. So. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one I've I've come up against for sure. I'm an introvert as well. And and yet he, he loves to use introverts too. And maybe our approach to that is going to look different to an extrovert who goes out and talks to everybody, but he's going to show us how we do it in our own personality and way. You mentioned several new movements that have started since the last time we talked. Tell me about some of those. How are they starting? What What is God doing around the world where you see these movements just taking off and exploding? Well, one that we've been working with is in West Africa. It's actually in the country that I was born in, So I got to have the privilege of going back to the very city where I was born. Wow. And uh, there's a new movement that is emerging there. And um, it's led by a lady who did our course, the Getting Started in Disciple Making Movements course, an amazing female apostle. God has used her and her husband in just incredible ways there. And she's one of the persons who, who has really shifted her mindset Um, She already had a heart for her people. She already was passionate about sharing Jesus with others. But she really shifted her mindset about who God can use. Another uh, chapter in the book is about how we grow the gospel through pre- and new believers. Really believing that God can use new believers, that whatever you give them, they can pass on to Mm -hmm. others. And so as she shifted in that mindset, it's just been incredible. And in just three years, there have been 96 new churches started in that area, many of them among people who are from from Muslim backgrounds. And so really, really exciting what God is doing in that area and uh, just, yeah, exploding. It's it's still at the earlier stage of a movement because it's only three years old, but we're believing God for, yeah, tens of thousands to come to the Lord through that. It, it seems like this type of expansion of the church 
works really well in a persecution situation because you're not counting on the pastor. You're not counting on having a big building, which the government could close down. Uh, you're not counting on a pastor that the government could put in jail. It is every believer's job to be making disciples and to be sharing the gospel and bringing more people into the kingdom. Do you see that too? Am I seeing that correctly? Or is there a special way that it works in a persecution situation, maybe better than a free open situation? Well, I think there are advantages and disadvantages. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, persecution, um, you know, it does make it so you don't have as much resistance from traditionally minded pastors and leaders who have, you know, maybe they are kind of holding on to the way they've always done things. So when you have a high persecution situation, that is less, definitely. And in ways that, many ways that helps. But in in places like, say, we have a one of our trainees in Cameroon, um, which is not highly restricted access. And um, he took our course and within, it was just, I was amazed at what God did through him. But within three months, he hit four generations of groups, starting groups. But he's a, (laughs) you know, he's an immediate implementer. Anything he learns, he goes out and does it and he goes out and teaches others to do it. And those are really the kind of people we're looking for. You know, the Bible calls them obedient disciples. (laughs) They, They hear and they obey. They hear and they practice like Jesus talked about in uh, the parable of the wise and foolish builders, you know, immediately they learn, they put it into practice. And I want to be like that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I won't mention his name, but uh, even though it's not restricted area. But so in his context, he went out and tried to talk to some people about it and they weren't interested they weren't sure about this, you know, what he was doing and could God use ordinary people? I thought you had to go to Bible college first. And But as he began to put it into practice and do it, he started again. He started with his wife and his sister-in-law and they went out and they trained a group and that group trained others and trained others. And so it does work in both contexts, but I think the challenges are different in each place. One of the things that I'm always amazed by as we work with persecuted Christians is how quickly the gospel transforms people and how once they have tasted Jesus, they can't be dissuaded. Whether it's being arrested or being beaten or being kicked out of their family or they're like, no, this is real. I've experienced this. This is real. You can't talk me out of it. I don't care what you do. I'm still going to follow Jesus. It seems like those very same people are then the people who are going to spread the gospel because they're they're not just going to tell their families, no, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what you do. They're also going to tell everyone else, like, hey, you got to meet Jesus because look what he did in my life. Mm. Are there skills that you can train to make them even more effective at that? Or is that kind of a divine gift that, that they have as they come to faith? How How does that work? I think, you know, when Jesus answered that kind of question, he, you know, he used the example of the woman who had been a prostitute and she loved much because she'd been forgiven much. And I think so often the degree of transformation does affect our willingness to tell others. And so we want to see God encounters people being transformed. And for some, it's a process. Of transformation that takes, you know, takes time. And for others, there's just this incredible encounter 
and then boom, they're off, you know. <laughs> but to whatever degree he has transformed us, we want to train people to pass that on and to share with others. And as soon as they've encountered him in whatever way, maybe it's through a scripture passage and they haven't even yet shifted their allegiance from maybe being Hindu or worshiping idols fully to Jesus. But what did you learn from this story that we talked talked about and who can you share it with? And so we're training people to be spreaders of whatever they know, even before they make that full decision to be baptized and to become a full follower of Jesus. And I think that is something that's kind of a DNA shift. Mm -hmm. In many other contexts, we think, okay, get them baptized, get them saved, give them a discipleship class, let them grow for a few years, clean them up real good. (laughs) And And then then they'll be ready for ministry. (laughs) Exactly. Then they can start sharing with others. And um, I think in disciple-making movements, we're encouraging people, share whatever you've got. Whatever you've learned, pass it on to others. And so I think that DNA shift, mindset shift, is really key. What does church look like for our brother in Cameroon who's launched this movement? What does church look like for him? Well, it's simple. And that's one of the characteristics of disciple-making movements. And again, another chapter in the book, it's it's easy. Keep disciple-making easy and actionable. And so they'll meet often in a home, sometimes under a tree, it may be in a tea shop, in someone's workplace, maybe they work in a factory and on their break time they're gathering together and um, they're reading scripture together. They're then discussing what it says, often in kind of a simple Uh, repeatable pattern. Mm -hmm. And when we have a simple repeatable pattern, it's much more easy for someone. They attend that for three or four weeks and they're like, I can do that. you know. And because you're allowing the Holy Spirit to speak and you're not preaching or teaching the word, you're just reading it, observing it, talking about it, and letting the Holy Spirit highlight to different people what he wants to. It is reproducible by even a brand new believer. And so Um, And then at the end, they're always saying, what does this mean for me and who am I going to share it with? And so um, and then praying for one another that they'll be able to do that. And then the next week they come back and again, they talk about that. How did that go? Did you share with uncle so-and-so and and with your colleague that you said you were going to share with? And how did that go? And sometimes it didn't happen and then encouraging one another. So that's what these these groups look like. Which is very different from what most of us listening think of as a church meeting. It's a very different thing. So I would encourage you as you're listening to this to kind of pray about that and think about that and and what are the parts that we need to borrow from our brothers and sisters uh, in these DMM movements who are, are seeing this growth uh, what are the things we can learn from them? I think that's a question for all of us to think about. Cynthia, as we finish up, we always like to equip people to pray. So I'm I'm thinking of our brother in Cameroon. I'm thinking of our sister in West Africa. How do we pray for these movement leaders that have launched these movements? Obviously, that comes with challenges mm-hmm, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to help lead that and to help guide that. How do we pray for them? Well, I think you can pray that God will give them both courage and wisdom when it comes to sharing the gospel moving into new areas that are dangerous. In in that movement that I talked about in West Africa, we did recently have a, a young couple who had just believed in the Lord who were killed by jihadists who came in. And 
that's tough. You know, oh, they're yeah. they're facing really intense pressures, and yet they are full of faith, full of courage. And uh, sometimes, as I'm coaching them, I'm like, "Should you go there? <laughs> go, don't go." You know. And even as a coach, we're like, "Wow, that that's a challenge." And how do they really listen to the Holy Spirit in those contexts to be bold, to be courageous, but also to be wise. And so that's one way that you can pray, um, particularly for the groups in West Africa. Also, I think just praying that God will give them people to mentor and who can kind of rise up and take more leadership. As the movements emerge, so do leaders need to emerge. And identifying those leaders and really pouring into the right people so they're not wasting time on those who maybe don't have the potential to to lead others well, that would be a prayer request. How do we pray for you and and the YWAM Frontier Missions team that are that are helping to train and helping to guide and helping to offer wisdom to these brothers and sisters? Again, we've seen a, a huge explosion of this online course and things that God's doing. Super excited. But also, we really need wisdom to know how to grow things well and deeply. As we're making disciples and coaching people, we need more coaches. We need more qualified staff to work with us as well um, who can help to mentor these these new movement leaders that are emerging and uh, wisdom to know how to really see people transformed. We don't want to make a bunch of converts. <laughs> we want to make disciples mm-hmm. who will really truly experience transformation. And that does happen through scripture as they're in these groups, but we also really need wisdom to know how fast to see things expand. Um, So that would be a prayer request and for protection and covering as well as we're going into areas that are not safe all the time, that God would um, just keep us safe and keep us sheltered, hidden when we need to be hidden um, so that we can continue to do what he's called us to do. Amen. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, Voice for the Persecuted.